Hey, yo. You know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here. You wanted a war, so you got one. You started it, we're gonna finish it. So this is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective there. Play! The Cho Cho Chosen One. You're listening to Main Event Status Radio. You started it. You want to go to war? You got a war. You started it. We gonna finish. With Mr. Beverly Hills 90210. What is the fate of WCW? And... The Dirty Dog Darcy. You want to fight, man? You want to fight? You got one. Only nobody tells me what to do. And Chico, nobody tells me when to do it. Now let's get into the podcast. Recorded live from Atlanta, Georgia, kind of close to Bad Street. Recorded live from the CNN Towers in the boardroom this week. I am Mr. Dirty Dog Darcy. He is Mr. Beverly Hills. What's that happened this week, Mr. Beverly Hills? Oh, man, the week I've just been spent with my favorite CNN student news anchor, Carl Azus, here in CNN Tower. I've been picking his brain, uh, getting everything, you know, how to how to do the student news, and then here I am in the boardroom with you, dude. I am happy you've been having a little bit more success than I have since. I've been, <laughs> I've been a, uh, shadowing the local janitors here in the CNN Towers to make sure... <laughs> To make sure this border was nice and clean for us to podcast this, podcast this week. <laughs> this is a big podcast. So I was excited. I wanted to make sure things were clean and smooth, that my ring bell was away from any cords and all that this week. And like last week in the Jenner closet, I'm just excited, <laughs> Mr. Beverly Hills. <laughs> amazing. So what else is also amazing is the year that we'd be covering in WCW. The year of 1996. Yes. From Chapter 2 of The Death of WCW, the chapter title is entitled 1996. The War Begins. <laughs> I am excited since, obviously, as of January 96, Nitro's been on the air for three, three to f- and a half, four months or so, give or take. And yep. it seemed like that by the end of 95, WWF and Monday Night Raw really hasn't had much of a, I guess, challenge or a threat on Monday nights. For the most part, yeah. And that will be changing up here in 96. Indeed. Which I'm excited to get into. Which we might as well just get into. Do the thing in the ring. Okay, my first quote was from page 69. From the time WCW and WWF first emerged as the two major leagues of professional wrestling... Fans had debated who to win in a showdown between the two. Many knew that the whole business was in fact predetermined. 
but it was still fun to contemplate the awesome matchups that would take place should the two companies ever compete under one banner. Yeah, and I just I was definitely part of that. I wrote in my correspondence with you here that like I definitely have floating around somewhere at my parents' house at least like four or five of those PWI or the wrestler inside wrestling that on the front has like a picture of Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair or like Sting and Stone Cold Steve Austin or something like that on the front that is all about, oh, what if, what if WCW and WWF came together? I, th- I think they they uh, bankrolled their operations for most of the those years with those magazines. So, yeah, I know, uh, Did you ever get those? I did get one, I think right around the time of, I want to say WCW closed its doors. Uh, kind of like fantasy booking. This was I think this would have been before the invasion storyline took place. Oh, okay. the, like the big WWF stars against the big WCW stars, and hey, the, hey, WWF bought out WCW, so we could possibly be seeing this, which we didn't. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it won't be a spoiler because it happened almost fifteen years ago. But <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I know I I do remember those magazines, like what you said that it seems like. PWI is a wrestler slash inside wrestling. It's like, yeah, it seems like that's how they captured the the wrestling fans' eye. It got their money from their from their pocketbook for that month or whatever for the fans to throw down their money to bring the magazine home to look it over on. What would happen if Goldberg would take on Steve Austin, The Rock take on DDP or whatever else? Right. Yep. Yep. So my next quote from page 70, the night was May 27th, 1996, a night that, for many reasons, was a turning point in the history of wrestling. It just happened to be the week that Nitro made a huge jump, expanding from one hour to two. Since Raw ran from 9 to 10 p.m., Bischoff decided to run Nitro 8 to 10, giving the show one full unopposed hour to build up the second hour as a must see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just I just want to talk before we jump all the way to May here. Um nineteen ninety six at the beginning, uh, not so good, right? We got the Alliance Ten Hulkamania match in March, which could very well be one of the worst matches like on record. Uh, Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Mang, Barbarian, Lex Luger, Taskmaster, D- Z Gangsta, and Ultimate Solution <laughs> against, you know, Hulk Hogan with the very awesome uh, reviving elbow the yes. where Hulk Hogan's knocked out and Randy Savage has to shock him back to life with the flying elbow, which is really one of the dumbest things like in, in wrestling history. So, I mean, 1996 is like, it's kind of that time where really in both promotions, but certainly WCW, they need something to really shake it up. Wait, and... Uh- yeah. I know you were kind of talking about, yeah, the early part of 96. I've been listening to, well, he has been noted that I've been listening to the Brian and Vinny show from WrestlingObserver.com, and they've been reviewing the Nitros every week up to, I think they're about, I don't, I know they're in May of 96. I think they're just about okay. up to when it goes to two hours. And I also a, a uh, paid subscriber to 
MLW podcast, and they have one of the co-hosts, MSL, has a podcast with Kevin Sullivan, who's, who was a booker during this time, and they're they're just about at the at that point too. And it makes me, you know, kind of like what you're saying about WCW first five months of the year that the the WCW World Title jumped between I think Granny Savage to Ric Flair to the Giant and all within like five months. Right. So it's kind of been going back and forth, like you said. That I think one of the main one of the main storylines besides uh, the the faction to end Hulkamania was I think up to May twenty seventh was the Giant defeated Ric Flair for the WCW title a few weeks before and. Savage and Flair have been feuding too, and I think right around that time when the Giant defeated Flair for the title, uh, Miss Elizabeth finally, on storyline wise, left Macho Man right. you know, for a divorce and and took all of Savage's money. And Ric Flair is <laughs> on TV wise flaunting the money, saying that this is him and Miss Elizabeth and woman and all that's going to the most expensive hotels and eat fanciest limos and the finest foods and all that all on Savage's dime. So mm-hmm. just to kind of give it more of a backstory on where WCW was up to the big, the first shot, I guess, heard around the world. Yeah. And like the, the tough thing is that the four horsemen angle, like you're talking about was really good, but they got lumped into the just pile of trash, pile of pig, just steaming dump. That was, Hulk Hogan versus Dungeon of Doom and, you know, culminating with that awful cage, triple cage, whatever, garbage, poo-poo match <laughs> that was that uncensored match there in March. To this might say a lot about me and you, Mr. Beverly Hills. You know I'm a sucker for punishment. Okay. The first match I watched... The WWE Network came out February of last year was that Triple Cage match. Oh, amazing. I don't amazing. think I ever... I never remember watch, renting that VHS tape and watching that pay-per-view, so I wanted to <laughs> go and actually watch that match because God. because I've been hearing stories like how horrible it was. I watched it like... <laughs> I, just Lord, my head I just turned off the network after the match ended like, okay, I need to figure something else out to watch. <laughs> Jeez. But, <laughs> oh, God, I don't know. That's a bad idea. Yeah. but kind of t- you, you are know, a second for punishment. <laughs> yes. Well, you know you know, I am, Gorilla. <laughs> kind of tying it back to the quote I, just, I quoted on page, from page 70 about Nitro, you know, being two, moving to two hours, then having the first hour unopposed. I felt like that was a smart idea. You know, mm-hmm. since, you know, they were unopposed to – Possibly try to bring in the WWF fans in and say, okay, this is the main event that we'll be putting on here during uh, when we're opposing Raw. And, yeah, and give them an extra hour build-up to possibly try to keep the fans of from Raw. And, for the fa- yeah, for they won't turn back to Raw to see the Shawn Michaels versus Sid match again or whatever else. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought, you know... I thought that this was like the ideal for the fan of the Monday Night War, like set up. If if they would have kept with just the two hour Nitro from seven to nine Central, I guess eight to ten Eastern, and uh, Raw eight to ten Central, nine to eleven Eastern, that would have been a lot 
like I said, I more ideal for the fan. I really liked the fact that I could watch the first hour of Nitro, catch the first segment of Raw, you know, the and flip back and forth instead of and then yeah, because by the time Nitro went to three hours, which I know we'll get to in later um, installments, by the time they went to three hours, I just was like, well, I'll just stick with Raw, even when it was like junk. But I'd rather stick with them. It's easier to digest a two-hour show compared to a three-hour show. Well, definitely, yeah. So the so as on as on the night of May twenty seventh, nineteen ninety six, Scott Hall came through the crowd during uh, Steve Dahl versus the Mahler Mike Anos match. Enos. Enos. Okay, who are these two? Monkeys, Mr. Beverly Hills. Do you know who they are? Uh, you call yourself an old school wrestling fan. Steve Dahl is one of Well Done. Is he? Yes. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> Steve Dahl and Rex King are Well Done. Mike Enos is one of the Beverly Bodies. It, for some reason, I'm sure they did it for a reason, but on WCW TV, they both look completely different from their WWF gimmicks. Why? Well, Mike Mikeyness definitely changed his look. I think just because he was kind of losing his hair, he shaved his terrible mullet. I think that was a good idea just to get away from that kind of dated look. Yeah, Enos, he was the guy that was wearing the leather chaps during the match, right? I believe so. Okay, it's just, been a long time since I watched that match, but yeah. Okay, well, just wanted to, yeah, make you know, figure you know, you know, draw you know, make. Making uh, conclusions because I think that's probably why I didn't make the connection with Enos when, yeah, like like you said, like I probably should have. Well, and I know him from a very very dying days of AWA when I was like a little baby Beverly watching terrible AWA before going to church on Sunday mornings. The Destruction Crew. Of Mike Enos and Wayne Bloom, which became the Beverly Bodies, they were they were what? one of the last. Did you just say Beverly Bodies? Yeah, that's what I said the last time too. <laughs> the before they became the Beverly Bodies, they were one of the very last kind of crews that stuck around to the very end of the AWA in like 1990. Okay, I am. That'd sad. probably be like one of my last memories of, or one of my first. Sorry, oh, last one of my very <laughs> first memories in like life would be watching those uh those matches on Sunday mornings. I am sad I did not know who Mr. Dahl Mr. Enos was. <laughs> and I apologize, gentlemen. <laughs> so yeah, Scott Hall came through the crowd and interrupted their match, then then uh then told Bischoff at the announcer's booth that the WCW got a war. Then yeah. on page seventy two I'm uh yeah quote again WCW got one all right a real-life war with the WWF that resulted in a real-life lawsuit filed by McMahon's company on June 20. The suit cited, among other things, unfair competition with regard to WCW's portrayal of this as an interpromotional angle, ironically, given WWF's portrayal of Ric Flair in 1991, trademark infringement, how it looked and spoke too much like Razor Ramon for their taste, unfair competition, WCW had allegedly claimed on its 900 hotline that WWF was ready to file for bankruptcy as stretch, but this was the year in which WWF was closest to going under in its entire history, 
and defamation and libel, I'm I'm sure I'm probably butchering those words, uh, for an incident in which the power went out at at Nitro, and Bischoff implied that, quote-unquote, the competition might have something to do with that. Okay. I, I just found so what's the question on that, or what's the? <laughs> well, I guess that 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 quote, I guess, kind of jumped out at me because it made me inter, or I guess, kind of like what in the in the quote that that uh, WWF was kind of peeled that that Hall was playing too much of his Razor Ramon character yet. Okay, they let Ric Flair in '91 bring in the world title from WCW that we talked about at the last podcast. And was kind of throwing a hissy fit about that. Man, you know that what's good for the goose isn't good for the gander. That's uh, that's so that's everybody, right? Like whoever does it first, well, it's totally okay when they do it. But when somebody else tries to do the same thing, well, oh, what the what the that's not fair. That's not fair. That always have that happens in like all sections of life, you know, right? Yeah. Like I'm sure that's happened to you before. <laughs> so well, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, life ain't fair. <laughs> well, exactly, and just like I don't know, the, with the character thing, I you go back to watch. Oh, hey, here's a side note, but one that I really wanted to throw in after listening to last week's podcast of ours, I went back and watched Great American Bash 1991. Yeah. So first off, I even pick more of a fight with the authors and saying that the announcers didn't say that they could that in that wretched scaffold match that they could get the flag they said it like 20 times they say it all through the whole match they're like and remember you can get the flag and win and they're like oh he's getting close to the flag and so i don't know where that blue you know whatever the authors thought that Oh, they never said that they could win by the flag. Well, I don't know. They say it a pretty damn lot. Um, But anyways, what I was going to say is that Scott Hall was talking like that or a form of that back in 91 even. So I don't know where they would say that he's trying to portray Razor Moan. I think just that's just what it is. I think anybody who goes from uh, from one promotion where they're a pretty big star to the other, there's going to be some brand confusion and it's not I don't, the new, sorry, the new company's job to try to like fix it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't think they don't, it's dumb for them to have to be like, you yeah, know, that's not, that's not Razor Ramon, whatever, you know, it's, that is what it is. Well, yeah, you kind of made me think of a remember something that if I remember correctly, before Hall jumped to WWF as Razor Ramon, he was in WCW as the Diamond Study. He was walking around with a toothpick and all that in his mouth, like he did. In, yeah, that he made famous in WWF. So, so WWF can't really complain too much about that. Yes. Uh huh. Yep. If you want to do the toothpick, he had been doing that for many years. Yes. Very good point. So I don't know. I guess I don't. Your note that you sent me was that you find it that you you always find it interesting that pro wrestling, it being a predetermined sport, always finds its way to the courtrooms. Yeah, yeah, I think it's lame. Yeah, because <laughs> then it's always a very like strange. 
it's a very, very just strange proceeding where they have to be like, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. This is the character they're playing and whatnot. So I don't know. It's just weird. Then uh, my next quote was, uh, would be from page 75. Before we continue, it must be said that the matter in which WCW initially booked Hall and Nash was nothing short of phenomenal. The whole idea behind drawing money and wrestling is actually pretty basic. Create a match that fans want to see and, more importantly, one that they were willing to pay to see. I guess that's one thing that, one quote I wanted to you know, ask you quote to mention that I felt like WCW and Bischoff did a great, had a great, started the feud off right, the invasion off right on bringing in Holland Nash, see, you know, bring them in saying that, yeah, they, they are the competition's main event stars. Mm-hmm. They're main event status players and bring them in and see them as legit, a legit threat. Yeah. And, you know, then well, Hall on his first night, you know, calling out Macho Man, calling out, you know, the Nitro main eventers and all that, wanting to, you know, wanting to take on what, what, take on WCW's main event stars. Yeah, the first steps of the NWO invasion um, up to including Bash of the Beach 96 are pretty much spot on. Um, after that is when we get into trouble, but those first few months, or month I guess, are um, <laughs> Maybe we're having, we're having an invasion on our podcast, Gorilla. <laughs> I guess are are about as good as it gets, and are really sh- really should be kind of the blueprint of how um how invasion should be done. Yeah, then uh, which leads up to, leads me to my next quote from page seventy seven. Although quote unquote mystery partner angles almost almost uh, almost uh, turn out to be complete flops in wrestling. The fact that WCW had delivered two monumental surprises in the appearances of Hall and Nash convinced the fans convinced fans that WCW would unveil another huge name. Right up to that reintroduction, the question remained: Who was the third man? Mm-hmm. I guess yeah, we we kind of already talked about talked on it, but our thoughts on Hall and Nash being booked up to the night of the Bash at the Beach, and I I really liked it that I maybe. Made me laugh and smile. The only thing I remember from the Great American Bash of '96, you know, the month before, was Bischoff interviewing Hall and Nash at the entrance stage, and then then Hall, you know, punching Bischoff in the <laughs> gut a little bit lower than Nash, powerbombing him through the table off the side of of the entrance stage. So, like you were saying, the first month, month and a half, two months, I f- felt like we're probably the the best, well, definitely the best invasion storyline of oh, yeah. the last. I guess two decades. Right. Uh huh. I would agree. I guess I'll jump in. And, oh, do you have Well, more? just like, yeah. And, uh, you know, mystery partner, it's all about the delivery. I mean, they, they did a really good job of building up to it, but it's always, it's always the delivery. And, um, yeah, like, like your quote said, nine times out of 10, it's just trash, but when you can really pull it through, it's like, you know, kind of a thing of beauty. It's really good stuff. And I mean, like we saw a lot of like back in the day, like way back in the day, mystery partner angles could really be quite good because a lot of times it'd be like a returning, uh, returning guy who hadn't been in the territory for six months or something. So the fans would really get a huge kick out of seeing, uh, that guy. 
in modern day, it's a little harder because like, who are you going to pick? You know, it, it either has to be a turn like you see um, here coming up or it's got to be, um, you know, somebody uh, who's already there. So that's not fun, you know, so. Yeah, my my next quote is from page seventy nine. Gene Orkland made his way to the ring and demanded to know where the third man was. Hall, channeling the Puerto Rican accent he used as Razor Ramon, retorted, "You know, scheme, Jim, you know too much already. All you need to know, little man, little man, is that he's here, and he's ready." Nash followed up and proclaimed, "He's here, all right, Gene." But we're enough to handle, or we're enough to handle it right here, right now. Which I guess kind of made me. I guess I don't ever remember seeing that on previous tapes of that famous three-on-three match from Bash at the Beach. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yep. It was always that uh, he's going to show up later. That it's going to be a surprise or whatever. Then, you know, the match happened, pretty much a handicap match for most most of the match. Then on, again on page 79, just as things begin to look most, beak, or most bleak, WCW's biggest star hit, hit the aisle, Hulk Hogan. As he came down the ramp, the fans cheered. WCW was finally saved. Then on page 81, Hogan. No. Oh, no. Yeah, go ahead. And like the thing with with this match, I just want to break up all these quotes. Um, is that you know Hall and Nash were booked to look really strong in the match too. Like they could win this, and that WCW is really going to have to um, come together to win this match. So yeah, in so Hall and Nash start out strong, then the three WCW guys kind of take over. Um, and Hall and Nash are kind of taking over again, and that's when your when your next one kind of goes in. On page eighty-one, Hogan dropped the leg across Savage's throat. Sting came back in to make the save, but was promptly thrown out again and again. Hogan yelled Savage, stopping him only to high-five his new friends. The wrestling world had his new number one heel, and WCW was about to take off into the stratosphere. Yeah, this is just the best thing that could have happened for Hogan, best thing that could have happened for WCW, just everything. It it was such a good decision to turn him heel. Like, he was so stale as a good guy, just so stale. And to finally pick him and flip it, that that was the best thing they could have done. Which, which Thought, I, thoughts on that? Yeah, which yeah. I which I agree with. Hogan, ever since he jumped into the WCW '94, he was playing the WWF character from the '80s, early '90s, and right first few months he was nice, but yeah, characters need a change. And most mm-hmm. most most Americans in wrestling pop culture during that time never remember Hogan as a, as a heel before. Yeah. The only, oh, yeah. They only remembered him as a babyface since at least January of 84 when he joined the WWF and beat the Iron Sheik for the WWF title. So it was nice to finally see Hogan jump the fence, be a heel, and see what kind of heel he could be. Right. Yeah, I agree. Okay, now I'll go to my next quote from page 82. 
The angle was a accumulation of many things that ha- that had happened in both companies over the past year. For Hall and Nash, they left a company that had lost four point four million dollars in the nineteen ninety four nineteen ninety five financial year to jump to a company which had, for the first time since Turner bought them in nineteen eighty eight, finally turned a small profit in nineteen ninety five. Hall went from an upper mid carter to a mid eventer. Nash went from a failed WWF champion, who or a guy who, while they tried to push him as the new Hulk Hogan, ended up being, up to that point, the worst drawing champion in company history, to a tippy top main event uh, superstar in WCW. I know we talked about you know Nash as, you know the worst drawing WWF champion or Road to WrestleMania 11 series, so no point of going to that dead horse again. But do you feel like uh, this angle could have worked possibly a year earlier in 1994 in WCW? In 95, you mean? Oh, yeah, 95, yeah, my bad. I don't I don't know. I'm not sure if the time would have been right, I guess. Okay. What do you think? I I don't think so since that would have, uh, since Diesel was still WWF champion in, in the middle of se- the summer of 95. Mm-hmm. So it would be kind of sketchy for McMahon having his WWF champion pretty much be on a handshake agreement on, and all that. But that's my yep, opinion. I think it's all a time thing. It's all about the right time. Then, uh, let's and see. I don't know if that would have been right. Let's see if WWF tried doing this angle of the summer of 96 instead of WCW. It's all about the hypotheticals. Okay. <laughs> I, no, go for it, go for it, do it, do it. That's I guess fine. which two WCW superstars could have jumped and made this angle work in the WWF? Um, I think if you're going to do, like, two big ones, it's got to be Sting and... Hmm, what other, like, one would be, like, really WCW? I don't know. I don't know, because all the... Maybe <laughs> that's Flair? like. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Right, because like the thing with uh, with like Bischoff's management style is he was just grabbing all like guys who had been big stars in the WWF. There really hadn't been anybody outside of Sting that was like just from WCW, right? So that's like I I was thinking then since WWF already had Luger, they could have Luger first pull the Hogan roll, come out, act like he's going to save WWF yet then churn on him to join up with Stin and whoever the second guy would be. Yeah, that'd be a good choice. I agree. Okay, then I guess I go to my my next uh, point, my next quote from page 84. By the middle of 1996, Hogan had a few options. His WCW contract would be due after two more pay-per-views, and he had no leverage left. He tried one of his usual tricks months earlier, and it, and, and, and it had backfired. The NBA playoffs were coming up, so he left to film a movie. Of course, the playoffs wrecked havoc on Nitro's ratings, and his plan was to come back and say the reason they were down was because he was gone. There was a flaw in his plan, however. He was gone too long, and when, he, and when the playoffs ended, Nitro returned and uh, started doing better numbers than he, when he'd been main eventing every week. So less than two weeks before the bash, Hogan decided to take the gamble and turn heel. 
I guess I want to get your thoughts on the leverage plan Hogan tried to pull on WCW. Yeah, people have been doing that for like many, many years when when they knew that there was going to be a downturn coming on. Like if you're in a city with a big baseball team, well, maybe you take summer off. If you're in a place where uh, there's crappy weather in the winter, maybe you take December off, you know, like stuff like that. Like, so then when you come back, business picks back up, people have been doing that forever, but yeah. Well, I, I guess that's know. one thing I like. What's about, your thought? I guess that's one thing I liked about Hogan was he, he was willing to come and go on, you know, come and go on, on off of TV. In ways I did just because it gave his character, uh, ways, uh, his character won't be as stale as it could be. Yeah, I guess I don't know. The only thing is that he'd usually take the uh, take the belt with him. That's that's the only downfall. That's the trick. Yeah. yeah, but I guess you know I kind of always compare it to wrestling nowadays. One thing I really don't like about John Cena is that it seems like he's always there. I guess not just pick on John Cena. That could be with you know any guys like with just as Randy Orton or whatever other main eventers that. At times, it gets kind of old seeing the same main eventers main eventing all the time and not taking much time off or being bumped on like what John Cena is doing now with the holding the U.S. title. It's nice to see Cena in, in a new role away from the main event, uh, main event spot and try to help build up the new guys. And I guess that's one thing Hogan never really, really seemed to do in WCW in the mid-90s. I mean, like, there, there's the key, that last part you said. It's not that they need to like go away. Although that helps it's more, they just need a refresh and they need either to go down the card or a different character or whatever. And I don't know. I don't think I, I like the situation more than how Hogan did it. Cause Hogan would always, he'd kind of try to just big time them that, like I said, he'd take the belt with them or the second he got back, he'd be in a main event program or things like that, you know. So, and, and do you feel like adding the new coat of paint on Hogan as being a heel? Do you feel? Do you feel like that helped Hogan out then in '96? Initially, definitely. When you know, from like if we're just talking '96, which we are, um, I'd say for sure, like hundred percent. Yeah, I guess. Uh, I think yeah, like what, what we were saying. Well, while well, well, you were saying at the beginning of the podcast that by the first few months of 96, the fans were tired of seeing Hogan as the same old song and dance stick Hogan from the eighties. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the whole, the feud and Hulkamania Alliance and all that. And, uh, was it like eight or nine man against, you know, two man handicap, triple layer cage match. <laughs> Baby faces one. That doesn't yeah. really seem too realistic and all that. And I guess that's one thing that, that kind of bothered me. I guess now looking back then to Hulk Hogan feuds, it was nice to see Hogan finally take a turn and see how it, see how it works, see how it sticks. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll, I'll go to my next point from page 89. Seeing that the New World Order had fans on the edge of their seats, it was decided that the time had had to come to add more members. Following an attack on his stablemates in the Dungeon of Doom, Giant came down to the ring, apparently looking for revenge against Hogan and his crew. However, 
In a moment that made absolutely no sense for, from a storyline standpoint, Giant turned on his team and joined up with the NWO. For the, for the reason that it made no sense that Davy Boy Smith was supposed to be the fourth guy, but the day he was scheduled to jump ship from the WWF, he in, instead re-signed a five-year contract. I guess I want to get your thoughts on the Giant being the fourth guy in the NWO. Yeah, well, it's kind of the start in the long downward spiral of the NWO that really, I guess, leads to the end of WCW, which is that at some point it just becomes, (laughs) it reminds me of like schoolyard football. It just becomes NWO versus all, which was, and I hated when football games degenerated to that too, but it shouldn't be that they, they can be, an integral part of the storyline, but I hate when, and we talked about this in the invasion storyline too, where everybody drops what they're doing and you either join the NWO or you're against the NWO. Like that's ridiculous. They should have been just like a, I guess, horseman like, uh, group that, were, you know, working toward getting all the titles or something like that. I I didn't like when they got to be really big. And I also think that, like, the key would have been keeping it at its core, which was WWF guys taking over WCW. So even if they couldn't get British Bulldog... I think they should have chosen someone else, Savage, maybe. Yeah, um, I guess, uh, or or, so, or someone else that had made that maybe a lower, I guess, a lower card guy, maybe, but dug in. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be awful. That'd be awful. But like that kind of thing, just like somebody who had made their name in WWF instead. I guess how it seemed like from the quote that they were thinking about having David Boy Smith, the British Bulldog, be in the fourth guy in the NWO and that kind of I was thinking about that you know this past week and I really don't know how they would how that would have worked since the Bulldog never really had much ties to Hall Nash or Hogan in the WWF when mm. all four guys were there I know Bulldog yeah but Hall Nash a, and yeah Hall Nash and Hogan didn't really have ties to each other either fair enough I know Hall and Nash you would know. have a feud off and on and I know Bulldog had a feud with Nash when Nash was champion, but I guess I also want to get your thoughts on. I don't all just. I guess if Bullock would have jumped, it was the fourth guy. How would, would how would it have been successful to on booking the NWO with the Bulldog as the fourth guy? Well, I I was thinking about it, and I think that was the right direction to go because I think one of the problems that happened with the NWO and why I kind of quickly backed off my Randy Savage thing is that well sorry is that it was all either like main eventers and then it started to be like jobbers but like they were adding just like these huge names well and if you look at like the Four Horsemen or any other really good um, stables that's not how it is you know that's not the the formula that's worked and you know adding 
a guy like Giant who had been a main eventer, uh, that was a bad idea, I think, in my opinion. So, oh, so I add, think. Sorry, so sorry, adding in a mid cutter like the Bulldog would have been yeah. good to have somebody in the NWO who's a, seen as a mid cutter go for yeah. the U.S. titles, go after the TV yeah. title. Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay, I guess. Just not looking at that, at, at, you know, with your viewpoint, I guess I can see that working if booked correctly right. as the yeah. was for the first two months. Right. The only thing is that, like, and this is kind of, I guess, a hallmark of the Bischoff, like, booking style is that um, they were just, like, hot-shotting stuff. They're like, well, what what could be the, the cause the biggest – pop and the biggest like shock value and you know adding a guy like british bulldog wouldn't do that adding a guy you know a u.s title level so if i'm i'm surprised even british bulldog was considered to be honest because i think they were way more biggest shock value they could get makes sense yeah I guess I can go to my next point from page 93. Not only not only did the ratings soar, but events also took an almost entirely different direction. Throughout the fall, WWF and WCW became engrossed in the biggest bidding war in wrestling history over the services of Bret Hart. WCW wanted him to come in, in as the savior of the company for huge matches with Hogan and his cronies. The WWF did not want to lose him. Both sides made huge offers virtually unheard of in the industry. WCW put a three-year, $2.8 million contract on the table, while the WWF offered him a 20-year deal worth an estimated $12 million total. Ultimately, he signed what figured what he figured was going to be his, going to be his last WWF contract with his active wrestling career. I guess I want to get your thoughts on Brett signing that 20-year deal with the WWF. Yeah, I I think it's uh, interesting. I think that obviously it didn't play out like he thought, uh, but it's cool that uh, he had brand loyalty that and that the WWF was willing to put up put up that money. I agree with him. I agree with that. that I, I I don't think back then wrestling companies were really known for putting I think right like a three year or a five year contract and something like a 20 year contract I felt like was unheard of or if not un- very 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 unusual and very very rare so it's cool that yeah. McMahon you know the McMahon respected the loyalty that Brett showed him for all those years and wanted to I guess reward him for his loyalty and give him a 20 year contract mm-hmm. it would have been interesting if Things didn't turn the way they did. It would have been interesting to see how Brett would have been bought through the rest of the 90s and the 2000s into now since his contract would be ending here next year. Yeah, right. So I guess, do you feel like it was good or bad for the WWF and or good good or bad for the WCW that Brett decided to re-sign with the WWF? Well, I mean, hindsight being twenty twenty, I guess the, I guess to be honest, it doesn't really matter because he leaves in a year. Yeah. Like if, you know, if we had more of Brett in the, because it's almost as if he didn't sign with the WWF because all that happens is he has one more year and then he goes to WCW. So, 
I guess I don't know if this is this really isn't the big turning point. Obviously, the biggest turning point comes a year later. Uh, if Brett would have say signed a, a three year deal with WCW, I guess would it be apropos to say that it would have been Brett Hart versus Hogan for at Star K ninety six? Don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess it's kind of hard to say and all that. Yep. Um, I guess to me, I found found it very interesting to see WCW trying to go and get any and every big name WWF guy that they could. Right. Uh huh. Yeah, and that's uh, like, I, yeah, that's the that's the Bischoff style, the Turner style. I was just trying to get everybody. Um. Yeah. Okay. Uh, get, I guess I'll go to my next note from page ninety-seven in regards to the Piper versus Hogan. Uh, yeah, Piper vs. Hogan match at WWE Starcade 1996. As the crowd celebrated, every, everyone wanted for the gold to be strapped around Piper's waist. It never happened. And that, yeah, it never happened, though, because the match was an, an apple... I can't even pronounce that big word. It was not... Inexplicable. A, an, inexplicably. It was an inexplicable, a non-title affair. Since Piper came up with the contract... Which we, which the authors told us would be important earlier in the chapter, we hereby nominate, or the authors hereby nominate Roddy Piper as the dumbest babyface of 1996. But they also decry from, or decry WCW for promoting a match that was clearly de- designed to look like a title affair. WCW had given its fans a bait and switch on their biggest show of the year. One that would, that some would, some would remember right to the better end. I guess I want to get your thoughts on the that book, you know, the Piper Hogan match at Star King ninety six. I want to also get your thoughts on that Piper Hogan feud in WCW. Yeah, well, that was that was a big feud, and it was big because uh, you know Roddy Piper was kind of the first one that was uh, brought in as as a big threat to Hogan. He's the very first person who really got a victory over him. Um, which is important and needed if your big guy's going to be a heel or whatever. Um, I either think they needed to have Piper win here, win the title at Starcade, or um, or lose. <laughs> I think winning a non-title match does nothing for him and does nothing for Hogan, especially because he won this non-title match and then he went away, and he went away for a long time. So it's... It it ended up being just a really really bad move, and um, yeah, I guess you. I don't know. I guess we're six months in and nothing and no major like loss has happened. Yeah, I guess you kind of touched upon why I kind of want to think about getting to. I guess let's say if they would have put the the title on paper, I guess then what? I I guess I was just kind of confused on uh, how they should how they should take and. Piper and then w, uh, in the '97 as WWW champion, and how that would affect the NWO. Well, I think then you just go in the direction of kind of the ending of the NWO. You know, a few months later, they would, I would assume, lose a War Games match, and they'd have to disband. That would be, and that's how I think they should have gone. Okay. Except now with the now with the Piper loss, I think it's. I think the the year buildup of Sting is just too good. Okay, fair enough. Which we'll get to I, next time, I guess. Yeah. 
I guess I'll go to get to my, uh, well, I guess the Piper and Hogan feud I found to be silly since it seemed like, well, because the Piper-Hogan feud, they also turned Bischoff as a play-by-play man into a heel, I guess, a heel WCW president that joined up with the NWO and all that. And I feel like, you know, that and the whole Piper-Hogan build-up seem to be a little silly, in my opinion, that just how they had it built up, you know, including doing segments on pay-per-views to build up to their start K-96 match. felt like it was kind of a slap to the face to the fans who bought those pay-per-views wanting to see mm-hmm. a Hogan match or a world title match. Sure. Yeah, and that's that's a, a different whole different can of worms, but it's a good one to get into. Just the whole idea of putting um, segments, if you will, interviews or whatever on pay-per-views instead of matches. Um, I wonder if this is something that was in Piper's contract or something, but to, to do that, yeah, is, I think, uh, uh, something wrong with, or whatever you said, slap in the face, I think to people who, some people who pay for pay-per-views, I don't think they're paying for interview segments with Roddy Piper. And that's certainly true. Um, yeah, I guess you kind of talked, uh, touched about upon it too, that, What's your thoughts, let's say, excluding Hogan holding the world title, do you feel like it helped the NWO and Hogan's heel turn initially that Hogan wasn't wrestling on every pay-per-view? No. I think he should have been dominant. Okay, if, so do you if feel they're like, taking over, I, I think it's just like he, if he's the leader, he's got to. Oh, so he, you feel like he should have been at every pay-per-view then? Totally, totally. Okay, because I I guess I agree with you on that. That you know, even if he wasn't on every Nitro, you know, they could have filmed, you know, the NWO doing backstage promos, or whatever, and aired it on the weeks that Hogan wasn't there on on Nitro. But I do agree with you that I felt like Hogan should have been on TV, especially that he won the WCW title at Hogwild that year after he turned heel and all that so you know especially you know i don't know who they would have also built up as challengers but you know they had the giant they could have had luger stand i not stand right away but like luger savage they could have other guys come in and face hogan and even if even if having hall and nash somehow interfere in the match to help retain the title right or i mean what's what's wrong with doing you know, at least one six man or, you know, something like that, uh, spacing it out that way. I mean, you can put trios match as the main event for some of those pay-per-views. I guess, uh, yeah, we didn't t- uh, touch upon, was it 96 where they had that uh, Steen and fake Steen storyline? Mm, yeah, because isn't it right toward the end of the year, and that's why he goes up into the rafters, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, what's your since I'm surprised we haven't touched upon it until now? Because what's your thoughts on the whole fake Sting storyline? Well, it's the fake Sting storyline's awful, but the idea of Sting kind of turning his back on the WCW proper and just being a lone wolf was awesome and holding him out. And I'm sure we'll talk in 97, but holding him out was, was a great, 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 great 
year long deal. Which which I agree with that that I felt like the uh, seeds being planted as NWO bringing a fake stain to turn stain against I guess against WCW initially, but yet not lining them himself up with the NWO. I felt like that was a great build up, which we'll talk about next week with uh, ending of I guess or the build up of Stan and Hogan next next week or next podcast. But yeah, I guess uh-huh. I I. Do enjoy seeing Sting kind of just KWCW screw you. You guys didn't believe me, and I proved you guys wrong. It wasn't right. me, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave. I'm just yeah. You know, you guys are losing me because you guys didn't trust me. Yeah. But yeah, I, I right, just I, agree. I guess I just I really enjoyed uh, that storyline at, at the beginning, and all I know we both listened to What a Maneuver and. I really enjoyed hearing those two guys go back and rewatch the TV and and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll, I'll get to go to my last uh, last point from page ninety seven. WCW was beating WWF at the end of the year in ratings three point six one to one point. Uh, Nitro had three point six one to Raw's one point six four, and from from page ninety seven, Bischoff had the formula. He had the stars and. Perhaps most importantly, he had the one matchup that everybody was dying to see, and he was going to make them wait to see it for an entire year, building up not only the anticipation but also the inevitable inevitability, uh, lack of sleep, uh, normal normal spy rate. Yet, uh, yes, he had the whole world in his scraps, but and as hard as it was to believe, 1997 was only going to get better yeah and you know 96 was really an awesome year for wcw but i just thought that it this almost might be the case of like when you do something really well on your first try you like think that's the best way to do things and you keep trying to do it so we have kind of this idea where uh bishop just kind of keeps trying to repeat his success with the nwo kind of over and over and over um, and he never tries to do anything different because it's like, well, it worked the first time. Why do I have to try to, um, you know, do something different? So, yeah, I don't know. Thoughts on that? I guess, yeah, I do agree with you that, you know, WCW and Bischoff did hit it right off on the right step with the whole NWO invasion storyline. And yeah, I guess the kind of like what, yeah, I guess, they started in ninety seven into or ninety six starting to ninety seven, which we'll get into ne- in the, with the next podcast, next installment. That it could, there's going to be some hit and misses. I guess kind of like what we talked about with the Piper Hogan feud and match at ninety six. They already start. We're already starting to see some flaws in their booking mm-hmm. that didn't really make much sense. And Hogan not being on every pay per view wrestling and not defending the title when he's the champion. Especially at WCW's WrestleMania, I felt like it was kind of silly. Yeah, right. But I, agree. I guess yeah, like like you said, like you said, they are hitting hitting it strong in '96 with the NWO, and I'm interested. I'm looking forward to us talking about '97 next week and seeing what WCW did right and what they did wrong with the NWO. Mm-hmm. Right on, brother. So I guess we can 
get into the plugs, but before we get into the plugs, I'm totally surprised I forgot to mention this at the beginning of the podcast, Mr. Beverly Hills. Oh, gosh. Okay. What was that? You might laugh at this, which I find to tie in perfectly with this week's podcast of the Death of WCW Part 2. Okay. I had a nightmare two nights ago, Mr. Beverly Hills. Oh, gosh. Okay. Oh, no. What's that? It was a hostile takeover dream that I had. Okay. <laughs> that I, it made me laugh, and I wanted to bring it on the pot, bring it up on the podcast because yeah, two nights ago I had a dream where Mama D and I were living at the house that I, that she was living at when we were both in college. Uh, okay. Off of a highway in Anoka County, which is uh, north of the Twin Cities by about half hour, forty five minutes. Okay. And in, in my dream, I was had the wild workouts that I, that I have now. And I got up, I think, late at, late morning, so like between 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning, I got up to go to the bathroom, and the bathroom window faces the highway. And while I was looking okay. out the window while going to the bathroom, I saw pretty like some ambulances pulling out of, uh, out of the field and going northbound on the highway. Oh, and no, I, okay. I didn't think nothing of it. Then moments later... I saw a tank driving on northbound <laughs> lane. Yes, a tank like the Rusev Russian tank from this year's, this oh, year's WrestleMania. Man. The star of WrestleMania 31, the tank. Yeah, the tank was driving up on the northbound lane on Highway 65 in Minnesota <laughs> while driving. It was breaking the highway into pieces. <laughs> Not just the northbound lane he was going, but also shattering the southbound lane. <laughs> and we were told by I don't I think newscast, however somebody, everybody was was told to stay in their houses and not to go outside because they believed we were being we were under attack and there was a hostile takeover happening. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! This is insane. This is one of the weirdest, wildest dreams I've ever heard of, but it's awesome. I love it. I love every part of it. I am. I, I was planning on opening the podcast with that dream, but I guess oh, closing I'm glad you it, finished with it. I'm happy. I'm closing. Uh, I'm happy you got a good laugh out of it. I woke up. You know, I guess Friday Friday afternoon. Wake up. You know, after that dream, like, was that actually happening? Is that was that real? I'm oh like, my god! Oh wait, that didn't happen. Oh good. I guess I know I got some uh, extra bonus material for the podcast this week. <laughs> oh, the tank. Yes, it made me laugh. That's the, road. the tank driving on the highway and it's shattering the northbound lane he was driving and the southbound lane, which was a divided highway, by the way. So <laughs> that just a kind of massive massivity of the tank shaking the you know shaking the ground and all that just <laughs> boggles my mind oh my gosh i love it <laughs> so we might as well get into the plugs for the podcast you guys can oh my gosh you guys can listen to us on our website mideventstatus.com that's mideventstatus.com you guys can also listen to us on our soundcloud page SoundCloud.com slash status Radio. That's all one word, Gorilla. status or SoundCloud.com slash status Radio. You guys can interact with us on the social media interwebs. 
Facebook, facebook.com slash main event status radio. That's again, all one word, gorilla. Main event status, <laughs> or Facebook, I'm so excited. Facebook.com slash main event, Facebook.com slash main event status radio. Mr. Beverly Hills, how can they interact with you on the Twitter machine? At Beverly Hills MES. You guys can hit me up on the Twitter machine at Dirty Dog MES. That's dog as in D A W G. Dirty Dog MES. Let me know what your guys' thoughts are on my weird nightmare dreamish of the hostile takeover with the tank driving on the northbound lane of Highway 65, <laughs> Divided Highway, and breaking up both lanes of both lanes of the highway. The sound waves of the tank. Yeah, um, we're breaking um, up. Um, 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 um. <laughs> Makes me laugh. So, Mr. Beverly Hills, do you have any final thoughts or memories of 1996 WCW? Oh, God. I was 10 years – oh, I was 9 years old most of the year. I was probably like in – was probably fourth grade. Fourth grade was a good year. We earned fake money and then at the end of the year got to buy stuff. And I bought a pack of markers that was in the theme of various NBA teams. So it was a good year. So I guess to quote the fifth member of the New World Order, brother, everybody has a price for the Million Dollar Man. Everybody has a price for the uh, for the NBA themed markers, <laughs> and, and it was like and it was like fifty Cordesville bucks, <laughs> which I enjoy, Mister Beverly Hills. <laughs> I, I think have- I bought a two liter of pop too. Which, which would very much foreshadow my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm happy back that you were a little bit more expensive to buy out than you were when we were in college together, brother. <laughs> Heck yeah, dude. So for Mr. Beverly Hills, I am the Dirty Dog Darcy. we catch you guys next time in 1997. Watch out for the tank! Mom, 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 mom. Show, ladies and gentlemen. Good night.